email set up or anything. Not quite yet, but by next week, cool. hopefully, yeah. We, yeah. we may. I just made a Facebook cool. group, so if you do have Facebook. 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 Ooh, More Facebook. like face face loser. Uh-huh. Yes, whatever. Right. So, anyway, yeah. You should definitely sign up to that. Okay. Well, <laughs> I guess that's it for this week. Uh, yeah. Thanks to Chaz the, for engineering uh, for us. Thanks. And uh, <laughs> we might even have a theme song next week, hopefully. Yeah. If Evan will get yeah. his act together. Right. Okay, so, remember, tell lots of lies to everybody for no good reason. Yeah, please. Bing Crosby, wrap your troubles and dreams, take four. Castles may tumble, that's made after all. Life's really funny that way. Sang the wrong melody, we'll play it back. See what it sounds like, hey, hey. They cut out eight bars, the dirty bastard. And I didn't know which eight bars he was gonna cut. Why don't somebody tell me these things around here? Holy Christ, I'm going off my nuts. Uh, the last bastion of freeform. WCBN FM and Ava. Sounds like a bunch of left wing hippies to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez, that mic is on. The Phil. mic's on. Oh, my God. Turn off the microphone. afternoon. Um, welcome to the Living Writers Show. My name is T. Hetzel, and today I'm talking with Susanna Moore, um, and you're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Susanna Moore is the author of the novels One Last Look, In the Cut, Sleeping Beauties, The Whiteness of Bones, and My Old Sweetheart, and a book of nonfiction, I Myself Have Seen It. She's currently on tour for the big girls, um, her her most recent novel and uh, she's in town reading at borders this sh- this show is pre-taped so Susanna will have read at borders um, uh, already but we're so lucky to have her here today with us uh, talking about the novel and and whatever else comes up welcome Susanna thank you T um, and so so we were just talk- talking right before um, we came on the air that this is the end of your your tour. How how are you? How's it? How is it being on book tour this time? It's I've done it now about five or six times. I've never been to Ann Arbor before. Uh, it's very tiring, of course. I mean, because you're in a different city every one or two days. The interesting thing that happens is, and I think this is true for other writers, is that you begin to, or I at least, begin to, to loathe the work. It's something very <laughs> interesting happens. By the end of the book tour, I'm so sick of the book and so sick of um, uh, thinking about it that I'm I'm relieved to, to for it to stop for that reason. Just and, and I think part of that comes from 
the writer's instinctive um, distancing him or herself from the material that you, you, in almost a superstitious way, and it's also practical, it's expedient, you, 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 you keep a kind of scrim between yourself and the work. You, you keep it almost um, deliberately uh, mystifying to yourself in order... Well, first of all, it is mystifying. You don't even have to attempt it. But you, at least I try not to think about it too much. And so, but when you're on a book tour, of course, you're asked all kind, you know, like we will do here today, all kinds of questions. Right. You know, what is your book about? What were you thinking? Why did you do this? And it does. To explain is always to explain away the and, mystery. And right. well, and also, sadly, probably even more than the mystery. So. It, it is it is an irony of a book tour that by the end of it you are just sick of your own work. We won't. I won't ask you to explain anything. No, today. no, you must. You, that's why I'm here. That's that's, that's what you're supposed to do, and what I'm supposed to do. Um, do you to try and keep things sort of fresh for yourself? Do you choose different pieces of the book to read at each? Because you'll be reading at Borders, and so, or do you feel like there's a part of the book that works well? Um, for people who are just coming to it for the first time, perhaps, uh, is that... I, you... I usually begin at the beginning. So but, chapter one, page one? Yes, but the beginning is not always necessarily the most interesting. It's usually expositional, and it's a little slow, and you're introducing characters. So that works as an advantage because the uh, audience, the, the, you, the people to whom you're reading are... Not in the dark, which they would be if you started at page 50. But I have on this book tour begun to read in different places. And and I've also done something very odd, but it has turned out to be really, I think, rather interesting, at least for me, which is that I've I discovered after a first reading that because the book is in uh, the first person and that there are four people speaking, that it's difficult to hear it and to be able to, to discern who is speaking. You know, when you are reading, there are all sorts of uh, visual clues. First of all, there's a page break, which is a mm-hmm. graphic um, signifier, and also uh, you can you can look back to the paragraph before. Or you can you can you can study it in a way that you can't if you're having trouble discerning the speaker when you're listening to it. Right. So I have. Um, do you have different voices? That no, you go? I've tried that too. I've tried doing it in sort of a different. I'm not an actress, and also, one has to be careful not to be condescending. There can be, that can be condescending. You know, apparently, there was a, a radio show I did in New York for NPR, and unbeknownst to me, they had actresses read from the book, and apparently the actress who read Helen read in this very strong... And, and Helen is the woman that has the prison inmate. Yes. Read in and a, uneducated. Right, right, but read in a very strong kind of working class, Long Island accent, and apparently it was awful. awful. <laughs> and But what I've done is I've asked either somebody in the audience or often the, a person who works in the bookstore to read with me. And it's been really really interesting and then and then do you, then do you hear the words in a different way too well, if that someone too, else is delivering which them. is a relief but also it's <laughs> it's much more theatrical it turns out you know i read the part of the psychiatrist because of my funny voice and then i ask the other person to read the part of helen who is the woman who's in prison and 
and to read it without affect and without trying to be an actress and mm-hmm. to just read it rather flatly. And it's, I think, it's, I think it's worked. It certainly has kept me from becoming confused or bored. Right, right. So then, so so people will have had a chance to hear you do that at Borders um, then yes, in Ann Arbor, yes, your yes. first time in Ann Arbor. Um, so so it must be interesting too because it seems like the the book itself um the big girls must have been finished quite a while ago uh, but like the nature of the business the publishing business right is that um you finish the work and you're sort of already i'm i'm thinking probably knee deep in your next project and and oh. your new obsessions and but yet you're talking about this book when when did you actually finish the big the big girls and what's the gap would that I were knee deep, knee deep in anything. It's, there's usually a year between the the f- completion of a, a manuscript and its publication. That's really standard. And publishing houses have a schedule. And of course, if something is topical, you know, Sch- uh, Schwarzenegger writing on um, on the recent California election or something that 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 can be rushed through. And especially now because of computers, it's easier. But the standard time is a year, which is not really enough time for me to start again. And it's not an, it's not, it's too long of a period not to do anything. So it's quite confusing for a writer that period. Also, you're quite taken up with editing and the revision process. Yes. And well, mostly line edi- editing. Oh, I see. Right, that makes sense. Um, is that would that be a time you might use for your creative nonfiction? Or essays? Yes, I do do that. I do essays and magazine articles. I find that I need time to fill up again. I, it's very hard for me to begin a new project immediately, and always has been. Between my first and second books, there was a period of 10 years in which I really didn't write a word and was blissfully happy. It's not as if I had... Writer's block or was or, struggling. Or with. angst about it. No, that, that, where are no the I, I should have. I should have, you know, and I look back on it and think, what was I doing? But I, at the time, I was also 30, and at 30 you feel you have... All the time? Yes. In the world? Yes, yes. Uh, um, and so so when you have a project, you, you actually, um, that's what consumes you. It's, 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 it's that, that's what it sounds like to me. It's not as if you have multiple projects going so that you're moving between them. Uh, like maybe um, an essay or something else, or is it is it really is it the novel that you're you're focusing on, and that's where all your energies are are going? I have written two things at a time, which are the two the the Indian book, One Last Look, and the Hawaiian book, which is nonfiction and a kind of mem- memoir. I was doing those more or less at the same time, and it was quite. Uh, refreshing to be able to move from one to the other. But the last three books I've written, the In the Cut and the Indian book, One Last Look, and this book, unlike the books that had come before it, required research. So in in all three cases, I spent about two years before I actually, two years with the, with the police and then with the other books, two years reading. Also, I lived in India before I began to write. Just, just reading and taking notes and keeping notebooks and looking. 
Ooh, well, let's um, let's take a short break on that and come back to that, Susanna. Welcome back. You're listening to The Living Writers Show. My name is T. Hetzel, and you're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Today, I'm talking with Susanna Moore, who's on tour with her most recent novel, The Big Girls. Um, we we left off before the break um, talking about the component research as a component in Susanna's work and how, um, for example, she lived in India for two years taking notes. And, and did you have the idea for a novel to be... Um, were you in India and that's when the idea started to uh, percolate within you? Or did you go to India specifically because you had kind of imagined this beforehand? I, 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 the research lasted for two years. I only really lived in India for six months, and I lived in Calcutta. And I had no intention of writing a book about India. The idea seemed, in some ways, not unlike the prison book and even the police book, daunting. And I, as I, as a habit of mine, I was reading very much um, books about the place and written by Indians in journals. And I was particularly interested because Calcutta in the 19th century had been the capital of the Raj in reading the journals and letters and diaries of English men and women who had been there. I mean, of course, I was reading Indians too. Mm. And as I was reading these diaries, I began to wonder what it was really like. You know, I was, I suppose, reading between the lines because these women were circumscribed, of course, because it was late to middle 19th century and by their culture. But there seemed to me to be something so much more interesting and complicated and dark that was happening to them. So I... And you gravitate towards that, like the darkness. Well, towards and women, certainly. Women, women's women, darkness. Women's stories and what... Mm-hmm. what it's, it, it is... It is what I think about. What was it like to be a woman here in 1836? What was it like to be a servant woman? Or what was it like to be the sister of the um, governor? 
And what was it really like, too? You know, not just um, in a... Not that the diaries are superficial, but they conceal. So in a more um, intimate and perhaps certainly more shocking way. It's true, because sometimes we think of diaries and journals as being where we can tell the truth to pieces of paper that no one ever needs to see. But often you still feel like you're writing for someone to find it eventually. And so there is the artifice layers there. Who was the first, what was the first woman's story that interested you for the big girls was it like because you it seems like there's four very strong voices in this book three of them women women one man um what voice did you came to you first what sort of launched it so that you were curious about the other voices uh, just to add to what you were saying about diaries i never think a diary is written for yourself which in part is why i can't keep one but um <laughs> uh, ironically, what I and comically even I, I had long for the past few years been interested in writing about what it is to be a mother. I had written very much in my first three books, which were about Hawaii and about my childhood, because I'm from Hawaii, or about having a mother and and being a child, and I I I was I was just fascinated with this idea of of motherhood in all of its complicatedness. And I had read a quote, which I think is Faulkner, although search as I do, I I am unable to find it again, even in my notebooks. But I think it was Faulkner who said that uh, after becoming a father, he was never happy again in the same way as he had been before. And I know that all parents don't feel this way, but I certainly did feel such profound sadness and guilt and sometimes anger, not not as profound and not as steadily, steadily. But I found being a mother, despite the passion I had for my daughter and love, to be tremendously complicated. So I wanted to write about that. And I suppose, as is my temperament, you know, as in, in the cotton and even in the Indian book, I really pushed it as far as I could go, and my character became a woman who has killed her children. I was also at the time interested, because it was very much in the news, in the idea that seems to be held by judges and juries and prosecutors and the press and the public that women who kill their children can be judged sane. This I was fascinated by. And and you make the distinction in the book that earlier in this country, women weren't prosecuted. They were actually taken to asylums and treated for a mental mental imbalance rather than as seen as criminals. Yes, or put to death. You know, there are now, I think there are 45 women in America on death row. 11 of them are there for killing their children. It, 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 seemed to me absolutely not only implausible, impossible that someone who killed their children could not be insane. Of course, as I began to do research, I, 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 I began to modify a bit my ideas. I was less adamant and I was more open to, to doubt. And also I was quite shocked to find that I had my favorites you know, amongst the women I suppose it's like a kindergarten teacher, you know, who finds that there are certain children she who, can't who stand. Your, right. Who are your favorites? Well, I, for example, I really sort of took against Susan Smith. I mean, this is to my embarrassment and to my 
somewhat surprised, you know, because I would I would have thought if my original theory was that these women were insane, then it's a little um, fanciful to be making you know uh, moral judgments, liking one and not liking another. Um, but that seems natural, like the human well, condition. Think, How could you not? I think it's unavoidable, but I was surprised. And the empathy. I mean, in retrospect, I see it's unavoidable. And Andrea Yates, for example, who who was a, a, a large part the the character who from whom I took a lot of the details, was to me extremely sympathetic. I mean, clearly insane. And I was very very happy when her um, sentence was reversed recently, and she was put into a hospital. Still a kind of prison, but but more appropriate. And she and. I hope better for her. Um, so, so basically, you're doing research on these. You've, you've, I'm um, reading everything that you can find, and everything and that I can find. The internet, which I used to be very wary of, now you know, turns out to be a great help. And then I re- I knew I had to have another. I decided that it would be too intense and too um, demanding in a way, both of me and of a reader, to have just one character. I was going to ask you about that. Please, yeah, please well, tell us why Well, there's a wonderful book for, by um, uh, Joyce Carol Oates called Zombie, which she writes about a killer. And it, it's one person, and it's very, very strong. But It's a short book. And she pulls it off, but I thought, you know, with women, there's a kind of, intensity that is can be suffocating and I thought I really needed another person so once I decided she'd be this psychiatrist then that meant I had to do even more research I had to really find out um, what it meant to be a psychiatrist in a prison what she had studied where she had studied what sort of teachers she'd had, what she believed in. Who gravitates towards that job. Their different schools, yes. Right. And the prison itself would seem to be, uh, you'd need to research uh, the prison life. Yes, that's not so, there are many, many monographs and books about um, that. And also there there are many really, really good anthologies written by prisoners themselves, of prisoners' writings. So that's, that was, that in some ways was the easiest part. It didn't, and didn't you also teach creative writing? That in the came prison? later. That that you would think logically that that it began there, but I had already written one or two drafts of the book when I oh. began to teach. And I think the reason is that in doing the research and even in writing it, I I I became so sympathetic. I felt such sympathy and pity that I thought that I should try to do what I could for these women in prison. It wasn't much. I mean, I volunteered to teach writing. It's not a great deal, but... And you also taught knitting. And knitting and knitting, yes. How many of the obsessions, the things that you are concerned with, make it into your characters, like components of your character? Because in the story, um, Helen, the, the inmate, is, is knits presence. Well, you people. know, it's limited what they can do. You know, that, that I, I 
couldn't be teaching them badminton. You know, I mean, there, there are only a certain number. <laughs> or croquet. Or croquet. Uh, there are only a certain number of things that you can teach them. And, of course, they don't have supplies. You know, they don't have paper and pencils or yarn. or So they're very limited. And the prison doesn't really want, or at least where I was, didn't really want me there. I think there are very sophisticated and really good programs at other places like Bedford in New York. And I know that Bard College teaches at Sing Sing, a very mm. successful program. But I, my, I was really the only person in this prison who was teaching in Brooklyn. So. That's interesting. We'll have to, well, maybe, um, well, well, do you think other people, is that something that could be expanded? Because there's so many arts artists in Brooklyn <laughs> that it seems like, and that would be... No, uh, I don't uh, think in that prison. I don't think they wanted They just wanted me there. No, no, eventually they got, they, that it didn't work out. I'm teaching now in a place that absolutely could use teachers and mentors. Um, I'm teaching writing to young men and women, mostly men who have just been released from prison and are there to get their GED. It's called Friends of Island Academy, which the street word for Rikers Island is um, the island. And there's a oh. there's a Board of Education-sponsored high school there where um, prisoners get there, try to get their GED, their high school diplomas. What so, are the ages ranging from? This is... They're up to 21 and 22. But as young as 16, you can go to a prison in, you know, a serious prison in New York when you're 16, which I, I hadn't known. I was quite shocked by that. Yeah, I would have thought you would have still been considered a juvenile in a detention center. Then, yes. No, no, you can be an Attica at 16 with grown-up men. So, so how how often do is it sort of a once a week writers workshop that you're you're doing at the the Friends of the Island Academy? Friends of Island Academy. I go once a week. Yes, I spend the day there, and they are writing their life stories for me. They're they're writing memoirs, and it's extraordinary. Um, are some of are are do you think that these people will then somehow? find a way into your next work? No, I don't think so. No, I don't think so. No, I, I sometimes think it would be very interesting to do an anthology of the work they're doing, but we yes. need, I've only been there for six months, we need a little more. And I don't know, you know, I, do, I don't know what will happen, but no, no, I won't use it in I won't use it in my work. Not that you would take it. I don't mean to. No, no, imply I know. I, no, I know you didn't mean that. <laughs> but the, would, would I use it as a as an inspiration for a novel to come? Yes. Or a book of nonfiction? No, I don't think so. Are, how do you find it? Are you aware of trying to keep boundaries with? Because it seems like very emotional material that they would be writing, and so that you could um, connect to them, or your heart would go out to them. Uh, how, how is that? It's very emotional, and it's. I often have to say to them because we're in a room, and sometimes we're just sitting in a circle. That it, we, I must be careful with them not to let it devolve into a kind of group therapy session because I am not equipped to do that, and that's not why I'm there. And also, um, it it takes us away from the writing. You know, we're we're not there to. They understand that, and and they're not particularly interested in it devolving into a, a group therapy session either. Right. It's more you're actually respecting them more as writers. 
Yes. People by yes. It took me a while. You know, I started doing this in, in working in a shelter and teaching children, and that maybe five years ago. And it, it's taken me all, all this time to really get better at it. I was, I was, I broke every rule in the beginning, and and how so? Oh, you know, they'd come to my house. You know, I'd buy them things when they needed it. I they had my phone number. They slowly began to take over my my life and my um and it actually caused um the man that I live with who is a sculptor and his studio is part of the loft in which we live, finally said to me, you know, you just have to I can't I can't work like this and live like this with the doorbell ringing and people under the table and sleeping and um i mean part it, it wasn't all sentiment you know one of the rules in the shelter is that if your mother is working this was a shelter where there were women and children if your mother is working it's a it's a it's a terribly ironic um you know circle that if your mother is working which is a good thing um your room in the shelter is locked so it means the child but the teenager, in theory, is supposed to sit in the lobby of the shelter all day or after school, which they just won't do. So, so then, the, if your the mother child has a job, the, street or the so. child is out on the street, <laughs> wandering around in the winter, and it, and and a lot of times they would ring the, my doorbell to use the bathroom or because they needed and as a destination a subway token. Or, yes, oh, that too. That's well, um, well. That's, but I learned. I learned. You, you know, I got stricter and better at it. And that's and you're and you're still finding a way to to teach writing and and it seems like a, a large component. Well, let's let's take a break and we'll come back on okay. and fin- finish that. Um, we'll be right back. Lejos de ti, el horizonte línea sin fin, nubes que llenan mi soledad, pintan tu boca, parecen hablar, de esta tormenta no pasaré, el fin del mundo no encontraré, materos crujen, el día se va. Negra me llevará de tanto en tanto navegar, mis lágrimas caen al mar, el viento disuelve mi voz, no quedan huellas entre los dos. Caí en ti En tu marea yo me perdí Una 
navegar a ciegas esta pasión Parco en las olas de tu corazón Hi, welcome back. You're listening to The Living Writer Show uh, on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is T. Hetzel, and today, um, if you're just tuning in, we're talking with Susanna Moore, uh, and she's here. Uh, she's currently touring or, or ending ending her tour, her book tour for The Big Girls. Um, Susanna, we're, we're go- you're going to read a little bit for us um, uh, this uh, um, next, but... Um, but uh, well, let's. Why don't we have you you read a little bit first, and then let's talk a little bit about Angie, um, one of one of your characters. Okay, I will read um, in the voice of the psychiatrist, Dr. Forrest, who's <clears throat> a woman in her thirties, early thirties. She's just finished her residency at Bellevue. She's. Um, overqualified really for this job and um she's finding her way do we ever learn her first name louise okay i did what i thought that was louise thank you reading through the maternal filicide records of the city of chicago i discovered that there were no convictions of women for murdering their children between 1870 and 1930 For 60 years, the women were hospitalized, treated, and released. None of them ever committed another murder. Any mother who killed her child was, by the very nature of her crime, out of her mind and needed treatment, not punishment. The public was more forgiving of these women than they are now. Most state laws require two conditions for a jury to return a sentence of death. The defendant must be considered a danger to society and no mitigating factors may warrant the lesser sentence of life imprisonment. Insanity is not considered a mitigating factor. An IQ of 50 is not a mitigating factor, nor is a childhood of torture and abuse. The standard police manual on interrogation and confessions says that the mentally handicapped have a special susceptibility to questioning and a willingness to admit to crimes that they did not, in fact, commit. But a mental handicap is not a mitigating factor. Neither is postpartum psychosis. We are required to give tests to certain of the new inmates, and lately I have insisted on giving the exams myself so as to ensure the outcome. A prisoner may be sent here for 90 days while a judge takes his time to determine whether she deserves a harder sentence or she can safely be sent to rehabilitation or a halfway house. That is where I come in. I do everything in my power to get her released into rehab. The women sent for observation have stolen a lipstick or carried a bag of marijuana for a boyfriend or bought a microwave they knew was stolen. The purpose of the 90-day sentence is to scare them so profoundly that they will never again drive while under the influence of alcohol or leave Saks Fifth Avenue with a cashmere sweater in their underpants. They fall apart the minute they're locked up. The intricate etiquette of prison behavior is unknown to them. The other inmates will not speak to them. They are unaware how to obtain 
the simplest things, a bar of soap, toilet paper, sanitary napkins, prescription medicine. If they are taking medication for depression or diabetes or epilepsy and are with, without their pills when they are arrested, they go into withdrawal. The women with serious drug addictions are more fortunate. They're thrown into solitary and given methadone for five days. Thank you, Susanna. Um, this, from the section that you just read for us, this is also, um, it sounds like a book of activism as well, although it's so, com I mean, but then to say that, I wouldn't want to say that that's what your intention for writing it, of course, was because it's com so compelling. There's a driving plot. Um, you're really like the reader, at least this reader was definitely pulled through the book. And there's, so how's the, how's the balancing with that? that well, I, I, I was, this may sound innocent or naive, but when the, the first reviews um, came out. I was rather startled to see that some of them remarked that this could be a book that occasioned um, certainly talk, if not reform, which really did surprise me because it was not my intention, nor, nor do I think that this is going to reform anything. It's it's too, um, you know, it's too far gone for, for, for this little book to, to do that. Um, but I think the book I think I think part of my initial impulse to write it and then a feeling that grew as I did the research was is anger. I, I think I can see in the book that I'm really angry and that comes through in this in, in I I would think what I just read a kind of cool somewhat scholarly because you you know anger is not enough. You have to back it up with information and facts and uh, but as I as I look back on the book now and, and again on this book tour while I've been reading it I, I sometimes say to myself um, that I was really angry but you know the other thing the book is about which I thought when I was reading this section just now is I, I, I wasn't just writing about mothers but I, I wanted to write about families and I think that is in the book. I think there, there's there's a constant interplay between certainly parents and children, and I'm very interested in that anarchy of families and the rage that children feel and the destructiveness of relationships. I mean, of course, as well as the love and the compassion. And, and, the, and you take a risk, Susanna, by connecting... Helen, the prison inmate, with Angie, um, the, the third woman character in the book who lives in Hollywood and is hoping to make it as an actress. Um, I hope that's not giving too no, much no, away. No, 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 not at all. But I wonder about the risk um, of, of uh, Helen writing to Angie from prison and, and telling her a secret that she is her sister. Um, I thought that was... That, that sort of is, I think, going along with your idea of like this, the family, like this is another level of family, but also another level of reality because we know the character Helen has sanity issues and she, she has a group of um, the horsemen are, are people that she believes comes that come to her yes, and her tell hallucinations. her to, her hallucinations to tell her to do things. They, they told her to kill her children. Um, so there's this level her of... Psychosis. It's her psychosis. Her psychosis. 
okay and 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 then you think well then there's angie who she is her sister and she's living in hollywood and that is another sort of uh arena for unreality not psychosis necessarily but um is that was that an intended connection with angie and hollywood being another in our society uh it's it's unreal in a way well that that was very deliberate too of course um that you know that I am interested in the dissolution of boundaries, both the difficulty I have in, given my temperament in keeping boundaries um, between myself and other people, but also in the in the book, the boundaries between psychiatrist and Helen um, change and become more fluid and, and even dangerously so, especially dangerous for a psychiatrist and her patient. And then I w- I'm very interested in the way the... Um, celebrity has caused people to to lose that sense of division between themselves and um, other more famous people. You know, it's manifested in things like um, the, the way we refer to celebrities by their first name, by, by our obsessive interest in their private lives, by um, the fantasies that we... I mean, like American Idol, for example, even the fantasy of fame and success. So... I very much needed in in to make that point in part someone from that world and I thought that since Helen lives very much through her in her imagination through what she gleans from magazines it's her only really source of connection to the outside world how how what would be better than to have her uh, have this fantasy about this young actress who she imagines to be her sister, which the actress, Helen, in fact, really imagines it. The the actress takes it as a kind of metaphor about sisterhood. But then the other thing that um, I discovered doing my research, which completely fascinated me and still does, is this convention in women's prisons of creating families. Yes. This has been going on for years, generations. It's a very um, well-founded practice in prison. It's tolerated by the prison authorities, thank God, and quite a lot has been written about it, and there have been many monographs and studies. And what it is in brief is that the women in prisons um, form really a kind of, it's more than a family because it can, can be so big. It's a kind of clan based on imagined um, uh, familial connections and the women play the parts of both male and female relatives. So there are as a grandfather, m- many grandfathers, grandmothers, uncles, cousins, brothers, husbands, as well as the female counterparts. And as I said, all played by women and they're very, very strict rules. You have to be invited into a family. There are rules about incest. There are divorces. There are baptisms. There are marriages. There are uh, family squabbles. There are um, primarily intense loyalties within these families that serve um, to... In, in a hierarchical way, but a very complicated way to protect um, the women in the family. Families have wars, one against the other. You can be thrown out of a family, disinherited, 
but it's just like real life <laughs> just like real life but more intense right right well because you're relying on the family and there's no and escape it's all they've from got the, it's the, all they have yes um it's so that's really interesting i can tell by listening to you speak about it just how it, it's intriguing it is uh, to you and several times during um our talk you've you've mentioned my my temperament and i was wondering what does that what do you mean by that and <laughs> what does, does that mean and I does that make you a writer i suppose what interests me you know what interests me but i think what interests me is maybe it's an an excuse or an easy way out of it um my what is what I what interests me is I think it's true it would be true for everybody is is determined by my temperament you know I'm a bit melancholy I'm um uh, you know susceptible to the plight of the underdog I'm a bit guilty I'm in regard to other people's sufferings I'm a bit um um hot-headed I'm a bit rebellious, which is probably why I got thrown out of the prison where I was teaching, you know, because I wasn't supposed to bring in yarn and probably knitting needles too. No, no, they had the needles. Oh, I did? wasn't that okay. I wasn't that crazy as to bring needles, but you know they use pencils too. Oh, yeah. okay. They use pencils because obviously knitting needles would could be used as a as weapon, a, a weapon. Or against themselves or someone else. So all of those things, I think, um, you know, are reflected. Probably in the things I choose to write about. I mean, they would have to be. But it would be true of any writer or any person. It's true of you. Do you think that those are the things that sort of that drive you, your life as a writer? Because could you have been anything else besides a writer? <laughs> well, it's what's or, really interesting. Yes, I think I could have. Oh, we have, we have to take a quick break soon or... or Sorry, I'm so new at this, Susanna. <laughs> You're so good um, at it. Oh no, thank you. That's kind of you to say, but we'll, um, we'll, um, well, let me just let me you finish what you're saying. I'm sorry. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, I think I finished. That was really okay. Yeah. So, um, so we'll take a quick break and then we'll come back uh, with Susanna Moore. <laughs> Welcome back to the Living Writers Show. Uh, my name is T. Hetzel, and I'm sitting here today with Susanna Moore. Um, so, S Susanna, what what was the reaction when um, when when you you're writing this book? What do you have pe good like good readers, friends of yours that are people you rely on that 
to talk over things? What what sort of? I had to learn the, how to do that, and I'm st- I, I still make mistakes. In in the beginning, I remember with my first book, I was giving it to everybody, you know, taxi drivers, doormen, <laughs> sales girls, all of my rel. You know, I was um, less secure and um, naive about it I, because it turns out if you, to give your work to too many people. Um, tends to make it tends to be confusing and that's when it was in the formative stages like at yes. the beginning so yes. when you're and, still and working all through stages it, it was okay. quite pathetic and i've learned over the years to to rely on just i really have two people that i give it to and they're rather different one is very moral and rather strict and a bit literal minded although extremely um learned and the other person is younger and, and a little more fluid, and I, but also extremely intelligent, and I rely on them. That doesn't mean I, I always take their suggestions or advice, but a lot of it I take. And and it's um, you asked before about the, would that make me a writer? I I think that I could have been a number of things, and I feel very fortunate to be a writer because it's. I, I, I'm I'm not sure it's anything you can learn, which might be disheartening to um, any of your listeners who hope to be writers and and feel that it's something that can be taught. I I think you can learn certain things about writing. I think you can. There are tricks and there are shortcuts and there are techniques you can learn. But I do the craft think, element. I do think it. In the main, it has to be something that you're born with. And don't people also say, um, and if you can do anything else, please do it, because it's not necessarily an an easy road. No, but I feel so fortunate, because also at this point, I don't know what what could I do? You know what? I don't know what else. I'm so, I mean, it is how I earn my living, and I I, I depend on it, and there are years when I'm broke, and there, you know, it's always a struggle, but I... I can't imagine. I can't imagine at this point what what else I would do, and and I do feel very, very, very fortunate. But I mean, and also to, I think it's complicated to say it's a gift because it sounds it sounds a little grandiose, and also it sounds a little discouraging. And uh, and through teaching, I've I, I as I said, I have learned um, that that there are ways to convey how to write something. But I often feel when I'm teaching, what I'm really doing is that I am not teaching people how to write, but I'm more teaching them how to read. I'm I'm really teaching them about books and reading, which is in itself a very, very important thing. Yes, like having as a a writer, having conversations with, um, in your mind, (laughs) um, with the, the writers that you love as you're reading their work. What what are some, since um, when when Robert Pinsky came to Ann Arbor to visit, he talked about having a poem anthology, which were all the, like, the poems that he just was so obsessed with that he would, he would write them out himself or type them out himself, and he carried them with him. So it was sort of, do you have books like that in your life? Like maybe not that you have in your, your handbag or your, your bag here um, that you can't be parted from, but books in your life... No, that no, have that I, sort yes. of intensity. Yes, and also I have notebooks. You know, I have what, mm-hmm. what would be called commonplace books in which I write things down, and I have I s- certainly don't carry them with me. And also, I'm not a compulsive writer. I have many friends who are writers who are absolutely compulsive, who are always scribbling something down, have their notebooks with them at all times, have two or three 
half-finished novels in their file cabinet, who have many, many ideas, know what their next four books will be. I, I also think about myself. I, I, I don't have a, a lot of ideas. I, you know, I think I have maybe... Obsessions? I have quite a few obsessions, but it's not necessarily the same thing. I have, I have probably maybe one or two more books in me. I don't have endless ideas. I don't have ideas at my fingertips. It takes me a while to get to something, which I, I bemoan. I wish I had more ideas about things to write about. It's not easy for me. But maybe but maybe because of that, you also sit with the ideas more, and so that allows them to go deeper for you as well, to reach like a different level that, because sometimes with so many ideas, sometimes people skim along the surface more, and it can make for good reading, but the, the, like the deepness of the work might not be there. I, maybe. I, I, I also just know that I can't force it. You know, I also have friends who get up and work every day, even if mm. it's a paragraph. Or One of my friends is a writer, and she's very happy if she gets six sentences down each day. I can't do that. I just know I can't force it. If it's not there, there's no point in doing it because it won't be any good. So uh, that sounds quite mystical and even self-indulgent, but I just know from years of writing that if there isn't an idea there, it's pointless to. So what were the books that, um, just to go back a few moments, like what are some books or writers that you feel like are, that they'd be in your, you know, the Susanna Moore canon I read a lot of Faulkner, mm. a lot of Faulkner, over and over and over again. A favorite books of his that oh, that you have to have. Like if you gave it to a friend, you'd have to go out and replace it again, so you knew you had it near you. Oh, Wild Palms, I love, which is a difficult book, and uh, Light in August, I love. Um, Absalom, Absalom, I like the lesser, what would be considered the lesser ones too, like the Go Down Moses and the books about um, Gavin Stevens, who is the lawyer. And I, I also think he's extremely witty. He's funny. I mean, I mean, all, you know, as I lay dying, Sound in the Fury. I mean, the, you know, to me, he's perfection. I also every year read. Um, the Odyssey and the Iliad again. Every year? Every year. As a kind of, I used to read when I was a child, The Wind in the Willows every year. But so I've read the grown-up version of The Wind in <laughs> the Willows, which is the, you know, the, the Odyssey and the Iliad. Um, I read, I read a lot of 18th and 19th century early. T t I, I, you know, it's interesting that I was, I gave a lecture a few months ago at Rutgers and one of the writing students asked me a question after and the he wanted to know what uh, what writers i recommended what writers i was reading and i answered as i answered honestly i think i was reading henry james and when i answered i could see the disappointment in his face and that i had let him down because what you know, we all know Henry James is a good writer. Some people may like him more than others. but And I, I saw that what he wanted was to be able to have a conversation with me, to be able to go back and forth, as did other students in the audience, and that I was really limiting myself when I was talking to them, and maybe in even a larger sense by sticking to these writers that I read over and over again. So I began asking. I started that night... And started um, 
saying to people, all right, all right, let's tell me what I should read in, that's been written in the last while. And already people like, um, you know, um, um, Dave Eggers and, and Jay McInerney and Brett and other people, though that's already an old generation. You know, those are already not the... Contemporary young writers. They're Ooh, they're sounds... they're much younger than that even. And that's a, surprising. Yes, they're I mean they're already the old men of this generation. <laughs> There's a young writer called Iwiala who wrote a book called Beasts of No Nation, which is one of the, was one of the there seems to be a vogue at the for these books about um or an interest would be maybe more polite to say in books about the uh, boy soldiers in Africa, and this was one of the first ones written by an African who lives in America. It's brilliant. And then there's this there's a book by someone called Mark Haddon. So people have been sending me in the last two months, or sending me lists of books, and I've been very dutiful in reading them. And I I'm not sure who who they're not too many that I would go back to. The the Mark Haddon. I don't know. Do you know this book? It's no. called um, Curious Incident. Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. It's extremely popular with young people. Oh, it's a good title. I don't... He's English. It's about an autistic child. I read it very, very quickly, and I loved every minute of it. And then then afterwards, I felt a little bit like, you know, I had just eaten a box of C's chocolates in my bed. I, right. I, I, I didn't feel that it was as good as I had thought it was when I was it. Was reading no, it was no wind in the willows. No, it wasn't Win in the Wheels, but it's a good book, and he's an interesting yes. writer. So, and I wouldn't have known about him had s- someone at a reading not said, try this. But it is true that there's a difference between those touchstone books that have this m- core meaning for you as a person, as a writer, and then these books that you can kind of go go through or go to for different reasons. But yeah. the Iwiala book, for example, is brilliant. There, I read there's a, a book that's recently been published of nonfiction called A Woman in Berlin by Anonymous, which I thought was one of the best books I'd read in years and years and years. So I wouldn't, I'm very grateful to this yes. uh, little push I've had to um, be more open and to be, in some ways it's lazy to, to, to um, depend on the classics so-called classics the way that I do. You know, I, 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 I'm very grateful that I'm doing this exploring. Are, are there any books that, um, that, well, I know I have books that, let me see how to say this, that have sort of beaten me for the time being, like, um, like, uh, uh, Life a User's Manual or Ulysses, where I've kind of taken runs at them, and they're there. They're always haunting me as books that I'm going oh, no, to. I think that's extremely normal for a reader. I think I started Ulysses six times. And and have you finished it? Give me oh, some yes. hope here. Now, okay. now <laughs> I am a complete, um, you know, I'm I'm devoted, and, and that I read again. But it took mm. me years, and I would, th- th- you know, throw it across the room in despair. There are a number of books like that. Um, Saul Bellow, it took me years and years and years to read. And now I think The Adventures of Augie March is one of the great, great American novels. So, you know, there are certain moods and certain times of your life and certain, um, you know, just certain moments that are good for a book and others that aren't. And you have to trust your instincts on that, your instinct being an inability to read it. You know, you you of course can read Ulysses. It's just just not now. Thank you. You will. <laughs> You're welcome. Thanks for the confidence. I had to learn that because I felt guilty about certain books too. But you you, 
it, it, it takes, it's very specific in a way, your relationship mm-hmm. to the book you're reading. Yes, there's there's times for for uh, for each of them. Hopefully, yes, yes. so don't be discouraged. Um, thank you. That's you know what. That on that note, maybe we'll. That's thank you so much for being with us here today, well, thank Susanna, you. and um, and everyone. Uh, Susanna Moore's book, The Big Girls. Um, you can go get it in the area bookshops. Thanks to engineer Chaz Barrett. And um, you've been listening to The Living Writers Show. My name is T. Hetzel, um, and this is WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Thanks. Speech Radio News. It's Wednesday, June 6, 2007. From KPFA in Berkeley, I'm Brian Edwards Tickert, sitting in for Out of Bogato. Democrats narrowly defeat what one describes as a Trojan horse amendment to the Senate's immigration bill. Veterans advocates say homelessness is on the rise among soldiers returning from wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And thousands of Cambodian Americans face imminent deportation. He's not Cambodian, he's an American, and everything that he knows is American culture. Those stories and more. But first, these headlines. I'm Shannon Young with today's headlines. As the G8 summit began today, some 10,000 protesters defied a ban.